1: Here we are. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of A Little More Good coming at ya. This was a good one. Um, Similar to our conversation with Maya Wickler, I was just brimming with hope and excitement for the future following this conversation. Um, Grace, Grace Nosek, our guest this week, Mm -hmm. uh, she's just the kind of person that, um, you know, fills my cup, that gives me me excitement for, for what's possible and, She's the kind of person that uh, I hope will continue to lead and I will continue to follow um, for what I'm hoping our future world will look like. Yeah, totally. Grace is is an amazing
3: person. She's a scholar. She's a storyteller, climate justice
1: advocate. Author, podcast host.
3: Yeah, I mean, she's uh, someone who's empowering the youth around her. Uh, like the next generation of kind of climate activists, and doing it doing it in a, in a really like optimistic way, yes, which is just so awesome.
1: And and in conversation with her, you can really feel that she embodies her message. Like it is a part of her physical existence; it's a part of her identity to to her core being. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of feel her passion, and and uh, that this is such an integral part of her identity. And anytime you feel that, you just like. Kind of are swept away with with uh, with that message, you know.
3: Yes, it very much uh, captivates you and encourages you to be part of this this movement or to capture some of the passion and kind of radiance that she has. It just uh, it's infectious.
1: So uh, we kind of get into how to deal with climate anxiety. We get into some ideology of of how to create hope in climate action through voice and vote and volunteering. Uh, we kind of unpack manufacturing uncertainty and the the role that fossil fuel has had in, in climate change. Um, we talk about a, a radical or, or a hopeful future um, going from hopeless to hopeful. Uh, there's just a lot to unpack on climate and how we can all be participants in being Positive uh, impact, positive participants to kind of use that word twice in in climate action. Yeah, and
3: she does it in like fun ways. Like her her own advocacy is there's like immense depth to it. There's also you know like it's it's very it's serious work that she's doing, but she's also found ways to like bring levity and joy,
1: playfulness and pleasure. Yeah,
3: right. Which is just so cool. So whether it's her like you know uh, juggling juggling soccer balls on her feet, right? And seeing how many times she can keep it up and doing it as a as a means of raising awareness and advocating for 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 climate justice and and you know helping to expose fossil fuel industry and all of the stuff that's going on there and how well she gets into it on the pod, you know, the the kind of like disingenuous motives that are behind some of even our our green campaigns, right? So she's just working to bring awareness, but doing so in fun ways. She flips us funny videos and, and notes on
1: Instagram and stuff to just share it and help tell the story that
3: needs to get out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ultimately, I think this is an incredibly important conversation and I think she's an important person to follow uh, so tune in, let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, we'll definitely be having more climate action podcasts in the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Grace is someone that we were stoked to share conversation with. So yeah. let us know what you think.
3: Yeah. And it's always just, uh, if you, if you think of someone who, you know, would like this or get a laugh out of it or, or appreciate, uh, grace or needs to hear this information, share it with them, share it on your socials. We appreciate that. And, uh, ultimately the more we can do to, to promote this, this story and grace, uh, the better so enjoy all right welcome back everyone another episode of a little more good we are uh we're happy to be here today with our guest our new our newest friend yes grace nozick welcome
2: Great to be here. Yeah. New friends in just 10 minutes. Yeah, it's I wonderful know, right? how that happened. <laughs> Instant friends. It's
1: just like, just add <laughs> hot add water, water, you know? Yeah. We wow. <laughs> yeah. had yeah. the same jokes. Yeah. Yeah. It's
3: already happening. <laughs> <laughs> just add water.
1: I feel like there's like a marketing uh, possibility there, you know? Get some, some ramen noodles that are actually friendship. and Yeah. There's
2: nothing that up. a climate justice activist likes more than marketing. I yeah. love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so
3: good. Yeah, so maybe that's that's the that's the jumping point. Climate climate activist, anti marketer. No, I'm just kidding. The climate activist with us, Grace. Um, you you have a long a long list of accolades behind your name already at at uh, at a young age. One of the things that we were talking about when we first wanted to have you on and interview you was um, this sense of excitement for like the future. Uh, even knowing, you know, it's a long road ahead and there's lots of work to be done, but knowing that, like, people like yourself and Maya, who we've had on the pod before, um, are are engaged in this work uh, is so, you know, uh, encouraging, at least from where I sit.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. I, I think I feel the same about you guys, that you're bringing the skills and interests that you have to the movement, and that's all that any of us can do at this moment. Like, there's no cookie cutter to coming into this it's like what do you enjoy what can you do with your friends and so it's special whenever I see folks doing that from from their own ways um yeah I have a very eclectic way of coming into climate as in all things uh because I have ADHD and uh for me everything in the world is connected I'm always confused when people parcel it out I'm Mm -hmm. just like oh but uh, no, like literally everything is connected always. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I could tell you a little bit about my background or how I came in. Wait, maybe. Even,
3: even maybe just a little bit on that. Like how how does uh, having ADHD help you to see the world as like a more connected place? It's interesting. I, I love the way you framed it because a lot of people would say, oh, that's like, that's something that's like off or wrong or yeah. is like. a a part of you that needs to be fixed or corrected, but here you're seeing it maybe, maybe as an advantage or at least giving you eyes to see the world in a way that other people don't. Right.
2: Oh, I definitely think of it as an advantage. I mean, it's hard in a lot of ways, obviously like my house is never clean and it's hard to cook for myself. And my notes are a hysterical stack of napkins and other things. Uh, but Essentially, the way I describe ADHD is like you focus on what interests you and also you're, you're taking in so much sensory information from the mm-hmm. world. And so I keep saying I want to write this, this essay that, um, you know, ADHD has kept capitalism from gaslighting me because what other people hear at a whisper – I hear at a scream. So it's like, my body isn't comfortable here. I don't want to be sitting at this computer. My neck hurts. Other people can kind of push past that for hours. I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot push through any sensory intake coming in. It's what my brain will focus on until I've set myself up to thrive. And so you know, that's frustrating because obviously I'm in more pain or more discomfort. Um, but I also, it forces me to do something that's really hard in this day and age, which is to try to set up my emotional, physical, uh, academic space to thrive. And indeed, I don't function unless I'm thriving. Mm-hmm. And that's really rare in this day and age. Most people are just making it through the day, just trying to hang on. And that's what capitalism makes us do usually.
1: Hmm. Wow. (laughs) I love that. Even like in our, you know, we, we drove down together in our pre-pod, like you had so many light bulb quotes or comments that just like took my mind in so many directions. Um, But just for context, maybe we can dive a little bit into your origins and then dig deep into the climate action that's needed to, you know, I kind of, I see people like you kind of like, uh, as the captain planets of the modern world <laughs> here to save the day. Um, but maybe we can rewind it back just, just for context. So people can know, you know, where you came from raised in Philadelphia, soccer player, yeah. Harvard alumni, yeah, Ob- Ob- Obama, you know, worked with Obama
2: not with Obama. I was an intern in the Obama White House and I go. made him laugh by running the wrong direction. Well, yeah, there you so. go. Yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the team. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, maybe we can just talk about, you know, growing up and how how you find found um, climate activism and, and where yeah. that started in, in your timeline and sure. then we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, so I think as I mentioned, I became a vegetarian when I was seven and I was like kind of really aware of hierarchy and systems from a very young age. And I just didn't understand othering. Um, like when, when someone would like, this is such a simple example, but when someone would like step on a worm, yeah. I was just like, why do you feel entitled to do that? Like what, this is a living like where does the sense of like i can just do this come from and so i used to spend hours after the rain like finding all the worms and clearing them off the sidewalk i still do it a little bit today like i still am in that rhythm but just this i think it's again the adhd just like a curiosity and a real openness to the world um i i can't filter it so i feel You know, I feel a very visceral pain when other creatures around me are in pain. And I think most humans are born that way. And then I think you learn, quote unquote, and I don't think we should be learning this, to shut it down over the years because, you know, you have other things to do and, and you don't think you can do anything to help them maybe. And it's too hard to care about things that you can't do anything to help. Um, I have never really been able to shut that down. I haven't gotten very much closer. And I think a lot of the folks really deep in the weeds on climate justice are like that. And I will just say, like, lovely to be compared to Captain Planet. I remember (laughs) that. I think it's important because that's like a story. But really, for me, the folks who are that are are our frontline defenders and Mm. communities, disproportionately indigenous peoples, disproportionately racialized, global south, like, truly putting their lives and their limbs on the line every day and that's why I'm like well I got to keep doing what I'm doing because that is such an immense sacrifice for our future Mm. Um, so yeah I I have always cared about environmental justice if you want to frame it that way always cared about humans and their environment and our ecosystems and other beings and then I was catastrophically injured when I was in university. And that added a really interesting and different perspective for me. Um, also, I never went to class after that <laughs> in college. Uh, so it's very funny because I, you know, what I did spend a lot of time doing was talking to people. Yeah. I talked to thousands of people and um, just learn their stories and listen to them. And I think that's been a massive part of like my life and my climate work is just knowing a lot of people so that when I ask them to show up or to vote or to be somewhere or to work on a project with me, I know all of these musicians and dancers and folks in different spaces. Um, So I know this, this answer is kind of jumping around, but... One interesting thing, I had always worked on environmental and justice issues, but I had stayed away from climate, even though I remember distinctly being in sixth grade and calling my sixth grade boyfriend and just ranting to him about George W. Bush's climate policy. And, like, to this day, I'm just like, why the fuck did I know that climate change was happening at 11? Yeah. And, like, the U.S. president, quote-unquote, did not know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but That's a fair question. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> like, and that's what I research, and I'm sure we'll get into there. Like, there was a lot, <laughs> billions and trillions of dollars spent on propaganda around that. Mm. But, um, I didn't work on climate because it felt like essentially we were on the Titanic like barreling towards an iceberg and we were going to hit it and there was nothing I could do. So I might as well enjoy my time on the Titanic and and try to make a difference in another way. And then I went to a talk by Sheldon Whitehouse. He was a Senator in the U S at Harvard and he framed climate change in hopeful t- terms for like really the first time I'd been to one of these events and yeah, I was kind of like, okay, like if there is hope, then this is the only fight I want to be in. And I'm not sure it was like a light bulb moment, but really from there, I've been dedicating every waking moment to climate justice in mm-hmm. many ways.
1: It's, it's well. amazing. And w- and what brought you from Philadelphia to Harvard to our, our humble coast here? In,
2: in- yeah, I, uh, I honestly fell in love with this coast. Like I did a, I I went on a trip with my younger brother and we started in Vancouver. Yeah. And I was like supposed to be looking for places to practice law in the U.S. because I just started law school Um, and law degrees do not transfer between countries, (laughs) which, which shocked me, to be honest, which shows you how little I knew about law when I went to law school. (laughs) I was like, oh, right. Yeah. You would have to go to the country that you wanted to practice law in. Um, That makes more sense. Uh, but I just fell in love with Vancouver as a space, um, and then, uh, ended up being able to put string together some fellowship funding to go to University of Victoria when I graduated and work with the UVic Environmental Law Center. And while I was there, I also got to work with the uh, Indigenous Law Research Unit at UVic with kind of Val Napoleon and John Burroughs and Lindsay Burroughs and Hannah Askew. And it was so special to see climate movement like led by indigenous folks and centering the revitalization of indigenous legal systems and um yeah it was really just inspired by the movement here and and wanted to stay and also had always been looking for a group of people who both really wanted to change the world in some way, but also really wanted to enjoy their time on the planet. Mm. And it's it's actually hard to find that overlap for many good reasons. It also probably takes a lot of privilege to have that overlap. But I did find in here in this coast folks who really wanted to enjoy the moment, but protect the future.
3: That's so good. I think... Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good line even as just like a takeaway, right? Enjoy enjoy the moment, enjoy the process, but do it in a in an effort in the fight to protect the future, right? So that other people can enjoy it. Because I think that so much of how we got to where we are is people just like enjoying it like and not thinking for one second about the consequences of their enjoyment or the cost of their enjoyment and it becomes like exploiting right and we would all look at that in any other circumstance person to person and be like wow that's an exploitation and that's wrong and that's bad and you need to stop but when it comes to like how we enjoy and live and you know strive for this good life we don't look at how we're exploiting the planet so to like marry those two together that you can and it is a privilege it is a place of privilege but to say we can enjoy this and we can be engaged in this at the same time I think it's like a really important thing for well that's, that's like a learning for me yeah it's not just like It's not always fun or easy, but we should find enjoyment in it.
2: Well, I'm also curious, though, because I'm kind of like, you know, is anyone enjoying late stage capitalism? Like, I don't think the super wealthy people, the celebrities, like, I don't, I think they know. And and I don't want to change it into, like, them versus us because Mm. lots of people are complicit in the system, but... I think people know that something is missing, that they are not getting the love, the affection, the community, or the meaning that they need in life. And so, you know, a lot of corporations have used that to get people to buy more and more things. Um, and, And our storytellers have been hijacked to really kind of show this wealth as like the ultimate thing to aspire to as people show off their homes and these real real housewives. And it's really like, this is what we want. We want to be able to buy these nice things, these chic things. And I don't see joy there. I see, I see joy in love and connection and knowing that you're doing your best to help the planet. But again... It's one of those things where I think, as we disassociate from our body, we know less and less what makes us happy mm-hmm. and what actually brings us joy, and so it's easier to have people tell us what they think brings us joy. But you know, I, I, it. Every social science study will tell you that wealth does not bring happiness. Although, of course, like some level of financial stability is very important and we should strive to get every human on the planet to that level but wealth does not bring happiness Mm -hmm. celebrity does not bring happiness and yet that is still what everyone many people are striving for material like i just like hate all material things (laughs) at this point but but that's not true uh but but yeah, I think that's what's so interesting. I think there is so much joy in leaning into this fight with your friends together. Like you guys, you have fun making this podcast. Absolutely, right? Like it yeah. deepens your friendship, well, and what, you're doing the work. Yeah, what, I you. mean,
1: one thing you talked to uh, talked about on one of your your podcasts or one of your articles was pleasure activism. Yeah, and I think you're kind of alluding to that yeah. right now. Can you kind of define that for for people? Because I think activism can be. Marketed, or, yeah. or the story can be told that it's this group of extreme people or these radical people in like a negative sense, yeah, or that they're uh fringe or or whatnot. Like, there can be like labels connected to activism to discourage activism, mm-hmm. yeah. but I think when you put the word pleasure activism, it brings joy and hope yeah. and you know, a positive. Um, approach to to caring. So can you talk about what pleasure activism is and the importance of it?
2: Sure. And I can talk about what it means for me. Um, But just for folks for more context, if you want to learn about it, uh, Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, is really where I came to dialogue with that concept. And it really seems to be kind of A principle that has emerged from black feminist spaces um, of reclaiming embodiment um, and and casting out kind of capitalism and colonialism and these these structures that make you feel like you have to be perfect and working all of the time and and shutting down your body. Um, And yeah, I think. For me, being kind to yourself and kind to your community is climate justice activism. At base level, anything that you do to get more in touch with yourself, to heal, to nourish yourself or other people around you, that is climate justice activism, and that will make the system better. Um, But often, I think people see activism as like essentially, I don't know, going up to someone with a a petition and kind of aggressively trying to get them to sign it or to call during elections. And we certainly need that. And the people who put in their time to do that really hard work that no one enjoys, no one is naturally good at it. Trust me, we all hate it, (laughs) but we do it. Um, But There are so many other ways to be here and making the difference. And for folks who have been crushed by these systems, for racialized folks, for queer folks, for indigenous people, like, honestly, I think the movement has really kind of just said, like, surviving is the work. Like, just surviving in a system that's trying to destroy you is the work. So taking care, that kind of pleasure activism. And then... Just, like, let's make climate justice fun. We can do that. Mm -hmm. Like, let there be good food. Go with your friends. Like, that's really what we've been doing at the Climate Hub. Like, you know, a lot of people are familiar with Harry Potter. Unfortunately, you know, J.K. Rowling has become a transphobe. Um, But there is this concept of the common room. And and so we would always say like the Gryffindor common room, like that's what the climate movement can feel like, like this space of camaraderie and togetherness where you're kind of leaning in with your closest friends against an existential threat. And that gives your life a lot of meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've certainly found that like doing climate work over the last 10 years has brought me the most wonderful friends, the most wonderful experiences, deep, deep meaning. And that's really like, the, the theory behind my podcast, Planet mm-hmm. Potluck, is like this: is what it's brought into to my life. Like this is how it's enriched my life so much. It's not just a sacrifice. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, so easy to be seen that way. Like, and I think that's that gives people a lot of uh, reason to opt out of climate activism. Is they're like, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, just take a ferry and then go over to the island and drive up the logging road and you know strap myself to a tree or join a blockade for fairy creek but like i don't agree with what's happening but i guess i'll just post about it and then hope hope for the best yeah but there's there's like a whole lot of things you could do and make them fun in between like leaving everything and going to the blockade which as you said and like as we know yes there are people that do that and like kudos to them and that is how they show up in this fight but there are so many ways that average everyday people can do it right oh yeah (laughs) and they can make it fun like they can make it meaningful that's awesome
2: yeah i mean kind of this this always cracks people up and it wasn't a joke but i (laughs) you know i don't have kids yet uh but i've always wanted kids and um i told and my mom is like obsessed with wanting grandchildren and she'd always be like are you dating anyone like is this (laughs) happening is this coming and so i started saying to her i was like Mom, I am not going to have kids unless you make sure that Trump doesn't get reelected again. So I was like, how's your political activism coming? Have you gotten anything done? Sign anyone else up to vote? <laughs> uh, and it was like kind of a joking spirit but it the underlying idea was absolutely true, which is like when I see white middle-aged boomers with some amount of social, economic, financial capital stepping up Fiercely into the climate movement, making sure that no more climate deniers, unjust people make it into office. Yeah, then I'll give you a grandkid. <laughs> but that's the moment when I know we'll be winning. And and yeah. and like the reason why I say that you have to vote on climate change is not just to start queuing in people's minds who care about climate that they should, but to really challenge the fucking boomers and and I shouldn't say it so aggressively like that, but really to challenge people who say they care about this, say they care about their grandkids' future, but are not voting in that way when we know that national and international governments are going to have to make a lot of the changes if they're going to happen quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And so I think by, by not challenging folks with civic engagement as what climate action is, we allow a lot of these people to, like, you know buy solar panels or get the car and feel like yes yes i've done my duty and so i really think it's important you know voting supporting frontline defenders um voting is something boomers are going to do anyway we know that they vote but we also know that they uh they vote in the lowest numbers for climate activists Mm -hmm. and it's the they're the group that has it as their least high priority
1: it's capitalism priority number one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. So just listening to this, um, you've spoken about manufacturing uncertainty and we've seen that in tobacco and other kind of, you know, naughty (laughs) industries. So Uh, can you talk about going from hopeless to hope hopeful? And I know you've mentioned in, in, you know, previous podcasts, if you don't feel hope, you know, you're disengaged, and that's kind of been a ploy of the fossil fuel industry. Um, you even spoke about how recycling is kind of a ploy of disengagement from the fossil fuel industry. So can you kind of talk, speak on manufacturing uncertainty and how mm-hmm. fossil fuels kind of directed the climate? Confusion for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for asking that because I do, like, that is the underlying point to everything that I am saying is that a lot of the discourse that we're having, a lot of the stories around how to do anything to act on this. They come from corporations. Um, And if you think about it, corporations, we know this. Like, Thank you for smoking. They have the largest marketing budgets in the world. They have the most private psychological research. That's what you do if you go to business school. You learn how to sell things to people. Mm -hmm. And so it shouldn't surprise us, um, but I think sometimes we forget that we have these master storytellers trying to sell us their product with, you know, the biggest platforms at all times. And and it's become so clear through my research that the fossil fuel industry has so profoundly and invisibly shaped our public imagination on climate change over the last 50 years, that most institutions and people don't know that when they take climate action, they're actually doing exactly what the fossil fuel industry wants them to do. And they have spent... Billions of dollars. I mean, I just finished a a PhD chapter on this, and it's it's mind-boggling, like, how smart and savvy and how deep it goes. We're talking kindergarten curricula. You start priming kids to believe in free markets and in fossil fuels, like, everywhere from there targeting opinion leaders across the country, targeting teachers, you know, creating these fake grassroots groups around the country to like disseminate their quote-unquote research and other ideas. And, you know, in some ways it was so sad to read these original documents. And I would so encourage anyone listening, like, please help me tell this story and please check out the original documents. Um, We can drop some links, I'm sure, in the podcast for you to do that. But like a, a tiny group of men... Decided in like 1980 to sacrifice most of the world and creatures on it for a little bit of extra profit. They knew exactly what was coming. They knew the science down to a T. I mean, there was still some uncertainty in the effects, but they knew climate change was happening. They knew it was driven by fossil fuels. They had a good sense it could be catastrophic and could be catastrophic quickly. And more than that, by the time we knew it was happening, they knew it would probably be too late to mitigate it. And they still made all of those choices. And now, because they would get sued if they, for fraud or, like, you know, tricking their shareholders, if they continued straight up undermining the science, instead now they're using, like, another dozen really smart, savvy, sophisticated messages. And one of them is co-opting racial justice, one is seeding this narrative of doomism. We now have more people in the US, I'm not sure about Canada, but I think it's probably the same, who feel helpless to do anything about climate change than who don't believe in it. A quarter of people feel helpless to do anything about climate change. And of course, when you feel helpless, you do, you sit out. Mm-hmm. Like it's the worst feeling in the world. I have felt helpless and hopeless on climate, and it is Horrible, it is paralyzing to feel like you don 't have a future or your kids don 't have a future and so it 's a really calculated way of you know getting the people who would care the most to sit out uh, and then you know recycling we have we have evidence now all these original industry documents that as early as the 1980s and 1990s Um, The fossil fuel industry, along with some other corporate conglomerates, knew that uh, recycling was really never going to be economically feasible, but pushed it all across the U.S., all through these uh, commercials and, and big ad buys because they want plastic is profitable for them and now it's becoming as they as they see their future of fossil fuels dwindling plastic production which they get 400 billion dollars a year in is becoming like this new way that they're really going to continue making their money but but in the 1980s people were getting really upset about single-use plastics like they are now it's a really tangible thing to see this trash collecting and so they they did all these ad buys to say actually it's okay this plastic's going to be recycled this is great to get people to stop worrying about, about it and and you know their internal documents say like you know this is greenwashing mm-hmm. they also pushed to get the recycling sign put on all plastic even the plastic that can't be recycled so that consumers would want to recycle it and so pe- these people who had been in the recycling industry for a long time were like you're ruining us you're destroying our business because people are putting all of these unrecyclable things in with the recycling. So they actually made it impossible to actually economically recycle. Mm -hmm. And 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 so and it's such a bummer because recycling in every study like you know it from your own childhood. It's what we teach people environmental citizenship is. Mm -hmm. If you care, then you'll recycle. And that is a message that has been repeated over and over and over in books and movies. And so now I'm coming in. You know, and I'm marketing the truth, (laughs) you know, and
3: the truth is always popular.
2: The truth can be popular. (laughs) Um, I kind of jokingly say, like, I don't have big oils, billions, but I do have peanut butter, my trusty rescue pup and the truth. Um, (laughs) And and I think, you know, there is something (laughs) about that uh, Um. that is helpful. But but with my research, I'm kind of like, okay, folks, like, I am so impressed that you care. I think it's so beautiful that you spend that time recycling and, and you're really reflecting, like, what do I do to my planet? Like, what is my impact? Um, but someone has, has kind of duplicitously, you know, kind of acted to channel that energy, um, in an unfortunate way and, and kind of waking folks up to, that their power is not just as consumers, but really seeing themselves as power in community, Mm. power as citizens, power as... I mean, if you want to take an hour to do anything, and I swear people spend at least an hour researching, like, how do I recycle this thing? I mean, I've spent hours and hours. Like, what do I do with this cup? What what kind of light bulb is the best and will actually work and will fit? And you're just sitting there and you're feeling terrible. Like, you've caused everything. But it's like, if you took an hour and wrote to your bank or called your bank and said, I don't want you funding fossil fuel projects anymore or voted or donated to a frontline community, like, that hour of time is so much more impactful in the end. And so... Not replacing these other individual actions and not saying that they're wrong, but really kind of making sure that folks know these other super impactful options and that that is really a part of climate action as well. One final thing, also in my thesis, um, when you make people feel guilty, they also actually disassociate from the problem so again this is like a very savvy psychological strategy that if you make folks feel guilty you they they don't want to feel guilty we don't want to think we're bad people Mm. humans don't our psyche doesn't want to and so you start just thinking okay well it can't be that bad or the problem can't be that bad
3: um yeah you can kind of offset some of that that guilt too right like oh yeah well i you know I recycled that bottle, so it was okay. Right. And even even just as you were speaking, Grace, I was thinking of how like when back to my own childhood and learning about like the three Rs, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. And how like the first two have really like they're kind of like really quiet lately because like you can't you can like make systems and markets and all kinds of stuff where there's like it's a it's a lucrative thing to recycle. Yeah. But like it's hard to turn reduce and reuse into like market enterprises. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, no wonder like those two things seem to be way less talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Like they still go together and Jack Johnson has this cute little song about it for kids or whatever, right? Nice. Where but like out of the three of those, the one that you hear the most is recycle and oh, this is made from like 90% post-recycled blah 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 and this and that or like all the plastic things have recycling on it even if they're not going to be or they're not able to be recycled because there's money to be made there yeah right and it like it's hard not to see it as like so sinister but I think that it's important for for people to know peanut butter rescue dog and the truth right <laughs> yes. like it's it's time to like start yeah. highlighting some of or, those things
2: so finally enough like I came up with the three Vs and I've been pushing them and I've seen them kind of trickling out. So we'll see how well that does. But uh, it's voice, vote, and volunteer. So like voice your climate concerns to your reps and your community and your institutions. Uh, Volunteer for climate orgs. And if you have the means, I I really think donating to frontline groups and um, organizers. I I wish some people would stop funding... Politicians necessarily, especially in the US, like some of these campaigns get millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and and that goes to ad buys where you could actually put your money into these amazing, usually you know, racialized organizing groups led by community for community where they're building social capital throughout the year and time rather than just like investing really quickly and trying to get these communities to vote. Yeah, and so, um yeah if you if you check out flip the vote um for anyone who cares about america or is american listening like they they do an amazing job fundraising for those groups who do get out the work vote uh get out the work get out the vote work there we go got it got you it, got it. <laughs> um uh but they they also do like lots of just like let's build governing power within community and uh, yeah so <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm talking at length about everything. But so that's voice, vote, volunteer. And then vote is like you really have to vote in everything, especially if the system is benefiting you. Um, there are folks who sit out of electoral politics. I, I can understand their reasons. There are folks who have been, you know, really crushed by the system. But if you benefit from the system, you have to vote in everything. You have to vote in your school elections, your student elections, municipal, provincial, federal. I mean, the the voter turnout in the, in the most recent federal election in Canada was terrible. Wow. Also, I mean, Elections Canada did disenfranchise a lot of people and students. Um, not purposefully, but they did. Right. <laughs> uh, could talk at length about that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but also in the by-election, in, in one of our most recent city elections, vote out, voter turnout was like at 11%. Like, that's unreal when you think that voting takes – a relatively short amount of time versus recycling or taking things anywhere else. So if we just knew that that was one of the most important things, and social scientists have actually quantified it, that that is the most powerful thing you can do. Vote against like a climate-denying politician or fund climate justice champions and get them elected.
3: Wow. Upgrade the three R's to the three
2: V's.
1: <laughs> well, even even I, I emailed our school board here in Richmond and asked them what they're uh, with my kids approaching elementary school i want to know what their policies on climate action were nice. And they're like recycling what else would we what else is there mm-hmm. like literally what else is mm-hmm. there was their response and recycling was the only solution and i i challenged them on that and uh that was it you know mm-hmm. that's where the the puck dropped uh was at recycling so there wasn't an awareness or a willingness to go beyond that R of recycling.
2: And you know what's such a bummer about that? Is like it goes hand in hand with like your individual carbon footprint, which was popularized by BP. BP sent out individual carbon footprint toolkits to like little school kids and to schools and so it actually enforces this message to little kids that they're the problem and they have done absolutely nothing to cause climate change they do not cause climate change and so it's actually just like psychologically damaging if that's where we're going to stop because they start feeling like they are killing the earth and i just like that's morally egregious to make our, our young kids feel that way. Yeah. Luckily, there's an amazing group and I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember their name, but it's youth led high school students who are dialoguing with all institutions and government levels to reform climate education um, in at least Vancouver, I think probably the province amazing. and and to really get a focus on civic engagement and solutions. And like all kids should learn how to write a letter to their representatives in class how to speak at city council like that should be a basic part of the curriculum and like that should be part of the climate curriculum
1: and who like when you said like kids aren't causing climate change just so listeners are on the yeah. you know on, on the same boat leading to the <laughs> titanic or whatever like what are, what are the big contributors to to climate change well,
2: um i guess like what is your intention behind that question because uh, there are lots of things that cause climate change, but they're. I would point to them as the problem. I
1: guess if we were to take action against things that are contributing to climate change, whether it's corporate or government, and you've probably answered that through a lot of what you've already said, like what are the entities or issues that we should be taking action against that are harmful to the climate?
2: Okay, so I just like would always come back, come back, come back to fossil fuels. They have to stay in the ground. Like we can create amazing new technologies, we can electrify, we can get the grid, but if we don't keep a large part of fossil fuel in, this, in the ground while we're doing that, our emissions are going to keep rising. And that's exactly what the fossil fuel industry is going to try and get everyone to do. Like geoengineering, carbon sequestration, let us keep expanding, let us keep building, we'll have the solutions eventually. Like, yeah, we don't have like that technology yet, and here again, this is where I, like, really shout out to frontline defenders. A new ro- report came out and saying that indigenous-led resistance in North America had blocked or delayed a quarter of the of North America's greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. And that's so, incredible. And so, yeah, if you're thinking just about, like, what can I do with my time and money and it's just, like, support frontline, frontline defenders, like, that's an unbelievable. That's huge. And, like, the victories, I mean, you can see... And those are victories so much beyond climate as well, because yes. like those local ecosystems are destroyed, mm-hmm. indigenous peoples are deeply impacted. They haven't given consent to that, like that. Those project wins are so good for salmon, for ecosystem, for forests. Like we really owe a massive debt of gratitude to land defenders and water protectors. Mm. Um, and then we need our governments to stop subsidizing fossil fuel to keep, you know, keep putting higher prices on carbon, but we really need fossil fuel companies to be held accountable. And right now that's not what's happening. They are portraying themselves as leaders. We're giving them a seat at the table. And you know, why I like voting so much is cuz voting is exactly the step that connects you to how we hold the fossil fuel industry accountable. Right. Who like vi- in Vancouver, saw a, um, they passed. This is the one I came to with my high school students. We came, we spoke at this. This was in that podcast you were listening to, Zach, where some of these high school students gave these beautiful speeches to Vancouver City Council, and that was a motion to – have the city push to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable for the, the government costs of adaptation that taxpayers were paying because we're already paying for the the cost of climate change. Like we're paying to rebuild our infrastructure, do all these things. That money is coming from taxpayers, mm-hmm. even though we know who caused climate change, who kind of conspired to make sure the rest of us couldn't do anything about it. You could only have, and the city passed it, but you mm-hmm. could only have that because there were these amazing councillors who had been elected by the city who were open to that. And I, I'd especially single out Christine Boyle and Jean Swanson, but Christine Boyle has blown my mind with the ad because she's done on climate justice. Um, but yeah, so that's the direct connection like we want to hold them accountable we elect these people we fight for them we join in community to support them when these things come before city council there's you can send emails you can send letters and you don't have to do it all but you know maybe give yourself an hour a week pick the things you're going to sign and and i would say like buy your plastic or do some or Spend less time on that. Just give yourself, be a little bit kinder because it takes an immense amount of psychic energy.
1: Those Mm -hmm. are all doable things. Like, you know, it takes five minutes to write an email or to pick up the phone and call your local MLA. And
2: Um, getting your friends to do it with you then, it's like you just can always immediately amplify your effect by then just being like, look, I sent this email, guys. Yeah, I always do that. If I ever take an action, then I email like 150 other people. I'm like, here's how you do it. Yeah.
1: It's like have a meaningful but, Monday. Yeah. Like we have like Meatless Monday or whatever. Yeah. Have like meaningful yeah. Monday where you like email your MLA, call your local, like you know, like yeah. do it once a week for spend twenty minutes an hour, like you said, and that like the ripple of that. And it's, I would
2: say do it in fun. Like my brother, yeah, I loved this. I just think we need so much more of this. And I was saying this to you. I'd love to see different iterations of this. But we had a big election coming up in the U.S. He, he's kind of in like the bro tech scene, and yeah. those people like care, but they are not. They think that tech is the way to solve the crisis. So they don't do a lot in politics, or like you know they it's also just like you don't know the space you don't Mm -hmm. know what you can do like everything you just have to try you have to learn you have to feel comfortable being there and we don't teach anyone how to do that right now but he decided after you know like a little bit of pressure for me to (laughs) have a party where he would fundraise for the, the the climate candidates and he would like it was a really fun party like all his bros came to and they like took shots of tequila every time someone donated like 500 dollars. and he was like if we raise this much you guys can buzz my facial hair in a, any way that you'd like and they became like a really like raucous good time yeah they raised a ton of money and while they were at the party they started making calls and phone and emails and it's like yeah have your people over watch 100%. the game like just get everyone to take out their phone during the commercial like make it fun yeah
1: we did a party with uh patagonia when steven harper was still in power to try to basically yeah empower and uh encourage people to vote Stephen harper out and it was so fun similar to what you're saying we had musicians there we had djs we had like artists we had people giving talks and like People were, like, riled up. And, yeah. like, it was all about having fun. And the byproduct was voting for someone to make a change. Yeah.
2: Like, and it made, like... You know, Stephen Harper, the evidence is very clear now that he purposefully built Canada into a petro state. Like, really built up the economy to depend on fossil fuels, crack down on scientists, muzzled, like, climate activists. And I just, like... I know I'm biased as a lawyer, but... Um, you know, when you have eight years, say the United Nations has given us or, or 12 or 11 or whatever amount of time, but it's a, a short time. We are going to need governments at every level. Um, and like climate just cannot be a partisan issue anymore, even though many groups have worked very hard to make it a partisan issue. Yeah.
3: Well, even just yesterday on the radio, I mean, it's easy to pick on, pick on people, but I heard yesterday on the radio, the premier of Alberta, uh, talking about fossil fuels. And he said, if, if the recommendation is to keep it in the ground, we will fight that with every thing that we have. Yeah. And it's like, Oh man, it was such a, like he's, he's, it's political. Like he's representing people who that's their livelihood. That's their industry. That's their job. So I get it on that hand, like on that level, I understand. But I'm like, at some, like, is there going to be a day where he hears himself say that statement and be like, Oh man like what was i thinking right like prioritizing now over the future right for political gain for personal gain for financial gain and it's like at what point do you step back and go oh god that's just like wrong because like to me that you know that statement was so stark like we will fight this with everything we have to keep it in the ground like it's there and we're taking it out and we're extracting it and like using it and i mean it speaks to that way that the economy was set up and everything but it was such a kind of like sad and sobering moment to yeah. be like, does he actually believe that? Or is it like colored by industry and politics? And it's hard It's hard to know someone's like internal motivations and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's
2: hard to untangle. But, oh, there's so much I could say. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, I could, I could do like straight. an hour and a half just <laughs> on that. I mean, one, I think, is that we are seeing, you know, folks who work in the fossil fuel industry saying like we just want well-paying jobs to support our family it doesn't matter if they're in fossil fuels or renewable or some mm-hmm. something else we just want those jobs and like we're seeing that really clearly um, I think the group is like iron and ore doing some really interesting stuff with um, oil and gas workers in Alberta like uh, we saw some unions um, some coal mining unions in the US say they're open to you know job transition as long as there are jobs so And I never, ever, ever lay what the fossil fuel industry is doing at the feet of the folks who are working for the industry. To me, it's like it's the lawyers, it's the accountants, it's the executives making these decisions and and doing so in a a really exploitive ways. I know that they know the science uh, because I've seen the industry documents. (laughs) Not only do I know that they know the science, I know that they were at the cutting edge of the science in the 1970s. Uh, every single major fossil fuel company.
1: Because people were on board with climate change not that long ago. Like it was yeah. like an accepted science, like 1980s. 1980s. Yeah.
2: George H.W. Bush ran on, we're going to combat the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. I mean, if that does not show you how powerful corporate manufactured uncertainty over the decade after, Interest and care about climate change dropped between 2000 and 2010 precipitously because Republicans stopped thinking it was a big, as big an issue. And that was because this small group of people, again, led by the fossil fuel industry, really worked to make it a partisan issue. And that's because, you know, it, it kind of comes from this beautiful thing is that we are we are people of community. We're social people. And so if we start believing that our community – doesn't believe in this thing or doesn't take action then it happens you know it's called motivated reasoning so we don't do it consciously but subconsciously there starts to be like a really good value to believing what your peers believe and and you don't want to be the outcast you don't want to be pushed out you don't want to be the odd one out and so that's that's what happened people again really use this savvy understanding of social science and humanity and i you know i Let's use that the other way. Yeah, like, exactly. I think, like <laughs> what that what that means is that you are the person best positioned to get anyone in your family, or your community, your faith group, your sports team, to care about climate change. You have power over them.
1: Mm, mm. I love that. It is empowering. Uh, I was watching Sephora Berman's TED Talk or one of those talks, and I might get some of this wrong, but. Maybe you can correct me or we can jam on it if I get part of it right. She was talking about how in Canada, how there's like there's taxes on carbon output, Um, but there is no limitation on how much oil and fossil fuel we can pull from the ground. So Mm -hmm. uh, fossil fuel companies are pulling oil and, and fossil fuels from the ground at like rates that we've never seen before because there is no monitoring that there is no measuring or or capping how much can be taken from the ground mm-hmm. so we're we're taxing the carbon f- output but we're not taxing what we take from the earth mm-hmm. and there's this like kind of like at the end line realizing that you know this fossil fuel dance might be coming to an end this act of desperation of all these companies like basically taking as much oil from the ground as they can and and the the effect of that is pretty monumental and we have our government not monitoring any of that
2: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i haven't seen that ted talk but i know zipporah works i think she's working on like the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty which is essentially like keep, keep it the, in the ground keep the oil yeah in the ground. like you yeah. have to be doing supply side work essentially like yes. not just moderating demand um yeah i that's exactly what i i agree with that i've been influenced by that sense that like while we tax carbon while we do these other things while we build up incentives for renewables we have to keep an eye on actually blocking new fossil fuel industry infrastructure which again frontline defenders are the ones doing that right left center you know blocking these pipelines um it's unbelievable work and and you know my first chapter was about how the fossil fuel industry is kind of secretly targeting climate protesters in all of these different ways, unbelievable ways. But one is that, you know, individual companies are hiring paramilitary security to deal with protesters. And so, really, when I say that frontline defenders are putting their lives and their limbs on the line, like that, that is not a joke. They are getting, you know, deeply harassed, physically harassed, then they get taken to jail where they're probably harassed. Some of them, if they don't get out, because one of the fossil fuel things the fossil fuel industry is doing is they're cranking up penalties specifically for pipeline protesters. They're targeting them. Um, you could go to jail for a really long time now in the U.S. if you get caught doing like a relatively, something that would not even be like a felony normally. Um... And, and so I just, like, I read these vivid descriptions of um, the protests uh, for Standing Rock. And it's just unreal what, again, largely indigenous protesters, like, how cruelly they were treated. We're talking pepper spray. We're talking they let dogs go and attack them. And then on top of that, they're being surveilled. We, there's evidence that protesters as young as 17 were being surveilled and that college campuses hundreds of miles away were being surveilled. These companies have so much power, like, and they're not using it ethically. I could tell you so many other ways that they've made Mm. our society worse. I mean, for one, again, another essay I want to write, they spent their time making people doubt science. What's happening now when people doubt science in COVID? Is that we're seeing vaccine hesitancy Science used to be a bipartisan issue and one group has taken it to exploit it for profit. And now a lot of people don't trust it. And, and, you know, science is not perfect. There's lots of critique. There's lots of reasons why we would be skeptical of how, you know, the mainstream has used science, but in a, you know, what I study manufactured uncertainty is a term of art where the, where industries Know that there's a scientific consensus on something, but it disrupts their profit, and so they specifically undermine the science around that for their gain. And there's a long tradition of it. Mm-hmm. And so it should be relatively easy to hold these companies accountable at least in in more it's always hard to do that politically, but as a society, it should be pretty easy to say, "Hey guys, like we can't we got to crack down on this. This is bad news on yeah. a lot of fronts.
3: That's wild. So many things, so so many things, even in that last kind of bit of conversation, like the racialized component of uh, like climate defenders and then how those people are being treated. And like, is it is it simply because they're anti-pipeline or are there other factors at play here based on like who they are, what they look like, where they come from, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, it's tons. And then, I mean... There's so much evidence of, of, you know, sexism and racism just in the fossil fuel industry. They constantly rank last on, you know, racial justice. The NAACP has called them out in every possible way for how they disenfranchise voters and communities, co-opt communities to get their projects through, like, ugh, fossil-fueled fooli- foolery 2.0. That's what the report is called by the NAACP. Amazing work. Oh, wow. That just came out in 2021, an update. Um, But for, so that's horrifying why they're treated that way. But then, and this kills me, is that we do not treat those protesters well. There is a massive group of people in Canada and the US who are annoyed when people protest, who think they're shutting them down, who will yell at them, who will harass them. Like,
1: it's blocking traffic. Oh my god, that one! Slowing kills down my me. commute home to I'm just to like, work. Or... Your
2: child will be able to breathe marginally better yeah. because this person is doing this. They do not get; they don't have funding for this. You know, a lot of them have given up making any kind of financial means to go do this. Like they're living in the cold. I, I just like to me, it's one of our biggest failings is how mm-hmm. we do not support and hold up land defenders and more.
1: So so can you talk about um climate change you're touching on it now but climate change and systemic racism and then maybe we can get into feminism and masculinity and climate climate change as well
2: Yeah I mean I think they're I'll just go at it cuz they're all yeah, just let's, like one, so one let's go at it nod, let's like go at can. it I'm tired of not <laughs> plus plus
3: <laughs> given how you explained how you see the world how are they not all interconnected yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah yeah I mean
2: we we know this is you know luckily uh, we have, um, you know, some amazing work uh, by, again, black feminist scholars on, on intersectionality, mm-hmm. um, specifically, you know, on how systems layer on top of each other to oppress people. And so, we, you know, like the whole basic understanding of that is that um, a white woman experiences sexism differently than a black woman because there's another layer and system of oppression layered on top of that, and you know, I think what a lot of people are realizing is that colonialism, patriarchy, heteronormativity—I'm um, missing one of the big ones—capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 interlock and support each other. So so that I think people know. But but something that is so cool that rarely gets spoken about is that if you can break out of one of the systems, you often break out of all of them at the same time. Or you they loosen your tie mm-hmm. on folks. um, You know, I'm queer. I show up in queer spaces. Queer folks have broken out of heteronormativity. I think that also makes them more skeptical of capitalism and patriarchy and colonialism. And so it has this... It has a a really dangerous additive effect, but it also has this cool effect Whereas, if you can get out of one of the systems, you start just being like, what are these rules that I – like, why? Why would anyone do it this way? And again, this is what, for ADHD, like, I really have a hard time understanding (laughs) because I'm just like, my body would not last in that job for, like, a day, let alone a year, like a lot of my friends – you know, work in these corporate legal practices that are many, 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 many hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing about this kind of grind about taking away our social safety net, um, you know, is it, it leads this feeling of scarcity. Everyone feels like they're scarcity, even if they're doing relatively well off. And I get it because you can, especially in the U.S., totally be bankrupted if you're middle class and you get one bad healthcare bill. But what that means is, people don't feel like they can share either their time, their money, or their energy because they're also really scared of this system dropping them. And so I think that's why people can't be as generous with time defenders because, you know, they're late. And then if they don't get here, then maybe they can't pay their mortgage. And, like, you know, part of the reason I've really tried to stay out of those systems is so that I have this, like, time and energy and emotional capacity to engage in my community, to engage, to be able to support folks who need it, um, who are struggling more than I am. Uh, So, yeah, I think that's the other really interesting point about this. Um, And I, I just think there's, you know, no doubt that racism is alive and well, and sexism in the world, there are some really powerful movements though that i find really inspiring and i it's it's, it's just you know we all just have to keep <laughs> keep moving in them but but that's why taking care of yourself can be climate action mm-hmm. because if you take care of yourself you're you're less likely to be defensive if someone challenges what you're doing or you show up in a space you can kind of you have that little bit of grace that little bit of like oh okay I can have empathy for this other person. I can step outside of myself.
3: Hmm. You talked earlier a little bit about like um, the embodiment, like peace. Yeah. Right. And I wonder like that comes back to it too, because we all have these physical physical forms and bodies and identify in certain ways based on, on who we are, right? Uh, the way we look and obviously many other factors. But how would you say like uh, embodiment is like, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what are, maybe what are some practices for you or that, you know, people get listening to be like, okay, this is a way that I can like show up. So obviously like taking care of yourself is one, but are there some other ways that like being, being embodied, like helps us in like the climate, climate justice world?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways I, I I was mentioning to you guys that I've just been like modeling human boundaries. Yeah. Like I'll just be like, oh, no, I can't take this meeting because I have to nap or, like, I'm going to eat and, and not, like, apologize profusely that my body has needs that I'm going to attend to. And I think, you know, this is again – oh, God, there's just so much talk about always. But, like, why folks with disabilities need to just be at the table and talking. And it's, you know, I, as I mentioned, catastrophically injured in university, have a chronic disability – Um, and I'm so good at enforcing boundaries, at knowing what my body needs. Like, you know, we could learn so much at folks with disabilities about creating spaces that are more accessible, creating ways of moving through the world and not only more accessible, but more joyful, more human, more alive. Um, so yeah, that's something I've been doing, just like really trying to model that. And if people an easy way also to do it is just like even if you're showing up at a meeting that's really intense just kind of being like how is everyone today like you know you don't have to do like a long practice of that but like especially also if there's something really hard and and you think someone in your space might be taking that especially hard like you know if there has been news of like a really intense racial tragedy kind of being like you know, I know this might be harder. Like, like just acknowledging that we're human and being human is hard and that you're not going to just, that's not going to disappear when you show up in a quote-unquote professional space. Mm-hmm. Um, I cry in my meetings now. Like, when I, I, I have so many advocacy meetings and if I feel, you know, often I get really upset because of the way people are treating um, people who are younger than I am. I, like, really, really, like hate when people patronize um, youth climate folks or um, don't treat them with empathy treat them as adversaries like you see that a lot I've seen that a lot at like academic institutions and other places where it's like they show up in the room and they're asking for you to do something as an institution and so you're like well I'm gonna treat this person as an adversary but those those kids are showing up they're not for themselves they're not asking for anything for themselves they're saying I want a livable future for you, for your kids, for this planet and to not just have not just greet that with basic empathy like I'm I'm so thankful that you are advocating for this. Thank you for your time and for your heart. I I just like it blows my mind. So when I get really upset and emotional, I'm kind of like, well, if I have to feel it as a young person, you're gonna have to see it like you're gonna have to experience it with me and i mean like when i'm showing up in spaces of like institutional power i don't do this in other spaces but but people whose systems are you know hurting me and and the folks that i work with or ignoring us um and it makes people quite uncomfortable uh but like why (laughs) like we're all really sad about climate change and like I'm not sure that these people these older people know quite how scared or sad we are, like that that we're not sleeping, that like it has changed the way we think about our futures and our dreams
1: well how how do you deal with climate anxiety?
2: Yeah, how do I deal with climate anxiety? It's been a real journey, yeah. I would say, over the last ten years. I mean we know just basically that action is the best thing for climate anxiety um, One thing is just knowing that the fossil fuel industry is trying to trick me into feeling Mm -hmm. hopeless. Like there are very real things happening. People are suffering. There is like an immense sadness to this. But there is hope for a livable and just future. A lot of hope. Um, And I think I mentioned this on a a couple different podcasts. But like because I have been in so much pain and when I was injured – my muscle died and my nerve endings died and I was in a lot, like, you know, kind of max human pain. Um, I really think about what it means to be in in pain for just an hour or a day and how hard that is for a human. Even just an hour of enduring pain can be really, really hard. And so I think about my work. If I'm doing something to lessen, anybody's physical or emotional pain in that day then I have succeeded and those things will build to something but that's enough like that gives me meaning and purpose in life
1: mm. I loved what one of the teenagers that you were working with said to and we were talking about this on the drive and how she was like you may see me just as a teenager but I am the mother of the next generation and the grandmother of the generation after that and and just having that generational perspective of how our decisions today have effects for you know we're we're basically selling the future of our children, our grandchildren, the children after that for for profit yeah um but i I do think if we can manufacture hope over manufacturing uncertainty <laughs> you know through voice and vote and volunteering and some of these other things um, you know, funding the frontline, the people on the frontline, I think that manufactures hope and it it can be a trickle down effect. Just, just like the opposite can, you know, if you are fearful, you close off. But if we can manufacture hope, I think anything becomes possible.
2: Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I often think like I've said, like hope is this is a bad word now, but it's like the most viral emotion. Like it, yeah. it can rise to the scale of a challenge because, and, and I have some videos on my website. Um, I'm at, I think, what am I? Grace, grace.nosick, We'll find out. Uh, Grace, yeah. Grace.nosick.com. I got you. And, um, <laughs> the, but they interview the high schoolers on the, and it's under the video section. And, and they say like, and, and I watched it happen. The, the two high schoolers were Nina and Uma. Incredible young folks who actually just graduated from high school, and they talked about how they got hope. It changed how they thought about so many things, and then they gave it to literally thousands of other people because they presented to everyone at their schools, all the, all the teens at their schools who were really empowered, and then people beyond that, and then made videos that were seen thousands of times. And, you know, it's not easy, but people want to feel hope. Yeah, And like, if you, if you can show up in a space and, and give that to them, it's funny, you know, I've done this 10 years of research. I have this background, but I often think the thing that people enjoy the most when I come talk to them is that I just like genuinely do have hope and Mm -hmm. I feel joyful and. Well, it's contagious, you know, when
1: someone is hopeful and they're positive and they're you know, finding passion or pleasure, you're, you're drawn to that. So if you're hopeful about climate, it can have a domino effect. And, you know, maybe Dean and I walk away inspired by this conversation and we talk about it to two other people. And there's, you know, we talk about how it's a common theme on our podcast, how like waves never die, you know, like creating this, this ripple effect. And if this wave can be big enough, then there is hope.
2: I mean, I have so much hope. It varies by day, of course, but we have all the technological and financial solutions. The answers are there. Like, absolutely. And the thing about like voting is that like you can build a movement to vote in two years. Like mm-hmm. you and and you can get your AOCs in office and like you have to get a bunch of them, you have to support them. But that work is just like meaningful at every stage because you're bringing like how i would do it is really make sure that young people i'm talking like you know 10 to 35 really understood the civic system and how it it relates to climate and knew how to vote um but we still have young people not voting in very high numbers something that i've been working on a lot and um they call voting kind of like the gateway drug to democracy, that if you start with voting that you then feel empowered as a person to like shape your institutions. And so it's generative, not just for climate, but just for making young people feel like they matter. We're, we're, we have a massive mental health crisis coming our way. I, you know, I feel like at the climate hub, we know the solutions and we're desperately trying to get other universities and institutions to like create spaces that are hopeful Joyful, Create Agency, Center Justice, and Systems Change, and Storytelling. The six mm. pillars.
1: Can, can you just Amazing. briefly <laughs> tell us about the Climate Hub in case people don't oh, know yeah. what the Climate Hub is? Of
2: course, yeah. Um, the Climate Hub is uh, this kind of hybrid institution at, at University of British Columbia. Um, I worked with a bunch of other students to found it, and it is... Uh, really cool because it is led by youth young people make the decisions um, but it's supported by the university so there's actually two full-time staff who support what the students see as the vision and it you know those six hubs kind of are those pillars I just managed mentioned guide what it does but every institution needs this because it's young people Mm -hmm. especially young people who are racialized who are queer um, who have other systems of oppression, who know what's wrong with the status quo. They have the clearest view mm. of of what is wrong and how this world needs to be different. And if you, they are, they care so much about climate justice. They already see it intersectionally. They already have this amazing view of a future. So we need to support them to build that now and like really kind of empower them. Um, and so, yeah, we, it's amazing to watch it just like expand and expand and expand because it was just an idea in my brain like four years ago. And now I think it's probably reached hundreds of thousands of people with like various programming.
1: Well, there's there's hope right there. Yeah. yeah and I stepped hope.
2: back as student director and, and it's beautiful to watch other people come in and, and take it as their own. And um, yeah, I, I, it's very cool.
1: It is ironic how, um, not ironic but uh maybe sad how young people are the most affected by climate change and they're the ones that can't necessarily vote yeah (laughs) yeah yet (laughs) yet
3: but it's yeah
1: there's one thing you mentioned on our on our car ride down together that uh, I thought was kind of a fun direction to to talk on how athletes can be ambassadors for climate changes
2: yeah um so this is uh, okay so I will I will explain the model from my brain. Yes. So essentially, <laughs> the, socia- the social science says that vouchers, which is just like a fancy word for leaders, essentially in a community, are like the absolute most effective at getting that community to engage on climate and see how their values impact on climate. And what that means is, like, we need Republicans talking to Republicans. Probably we need, like, Midwest Republican. I'm sorry, I'm using American terms. But we need, uh, you know, soccer players talking to soccer players um, or these various groups. And what we also know is that young people by far are the group that care the most about climate, who understand that it's happening now, and they understand that it's urgent. And they're all part of what I would call vertical communities, right? They have just their family, their parents, their grandparents, but also any other group that they're a part of. Their church, that will be an intergenerational church if they play sports. You know, if they're really committed to it, there's probably like an intergenerational element to their sports. And, you know, we know that athletes have this kind of crossing of geographic and political boundaries. People come together around sports. Like I remember watching the celebration after the Toronto Raptors won. And I was like, what if we had that for fucking climate change? (laughs) Like, like that kind of just like fun and joy and like, like that energy, like we're coming out. (laughs) Um, That's the best
1: trophy of all. Saving saving the planet.
2: Yeah. Uh, So, i yeah, I just thought athletes were a really interesting group to play with and uh, to like collaborate with and so and I was an athlete, and uh the other really cool thing about athletes is they like literally have captains they've already decided who mm-hmm. their leaders are they're an incredibly like insular community mm-hmm. where like you tell one person on the team, everyone on that team knows you know, and then there's not a massive rugby community in Vancouver, so then the like, community knows. Um, so it's like a really powerful way to spread these ideas. And, you know, as people talk about sports and climate change, what they're usually talking about is reducing the carbon emissions of, and like the environmental impact of sports, which again, not a bad thing to do, but I think there's incredible power for athletes, especially on voting to get young people to vote, uh, which is kind of what we focus on. We made, we made a short film with the athletes at UBC and I loved it. I went to go present to all the captains of all the teams. And, you know, everyone always was like, why don't you get the ski team, Grace, or the mountain climbers? And I was like, no, like, they already care about climate. Like, <laughs> we know. They've they've gotten covered. Like, Patagonia, yeah. they're doing their thing. Like,
0: PAL, protect our
2: winters. Like there it is. I was like, I want the fucking football players and the mm-hmm. basketball players, because I know they care about climate change. And that was exactly what happened. Like, went, presented to these captains. The first, I was like... We want to make a movie about systems, climate change, and how like climate comebacks can can be kind of anal- um compared to like comebacks from sports because mm-hmm. there is this really like that's where we see the human spirit in these like Rocky and these other things Mighty like Mighty Ducks you yeah know? people coming back from unbelievable hurdles yeah and it also captures how hard that is that there is real suffering that it's not going to be easy to like you know speed up our action on climate but that it's possible that like when humans dig deep. Um, and so we made this film kind of comparing the two and the first person who emailed us back was the football team followed closely by the rugby team. (laughs) We're like, yes, we totally want to be a part of this. Like I'll get the guys on the team. Uh, and so then we held an ambassador, like a climate ambassador event specifically for them. And this is something I like, so want people working on climate to like do a bit more of Is like people hold climate events in climate, quote unquote, climate spaces already and then expect people to come to them. I think it's really special to go to the community Mm -hmm. and like bring the climate event to them and kind of tailor it to their needs. So we found out like when athletes actually have time in their schedules because they have the wildest schedules, of course, in university, something that we just like hadn't been doing when we were planning our other events. Figured out what time they like might usually have free from practice. Whatnot? We got an amazing athlete MC who also cared about climate change, who like started the event with like wall sits, (laughs) classic. (laughs) And just like, yeah, had a lot of athletes speak about climate change and how the two related. And we got a, I was so surprised that a ton of athletes showed up. And I'd never seen those folks at other climate events. Again, not because I don't think they cared, but just because it didn't fit in their schedule. They weren't used to those worlds. Um, and yeah, it was amazing. And then they did a lot of work getting young people to vote in the election. That's awesome.
1: And athletes need clean air.
2: Yeah, they do. You know, yeah.
1: It's yeah. hard, it's hard but, to uh, yeah. play football if it's, uh, yeah. you know, the air air pollution's so high that you can't, uh.
2: Yeah. Also, athletes have been leading on social justice. Like totally. We, uh, like, particularly black athletes. But, like, we've just yeah. seen that. And LeBron James, like, created this scheme to, like, use, um, Arenas to get people to vote in the last election, yes. which was so smart and like that organizing. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. The NBA has got some cool stuff going on, especially like you said, a lot of black athletes leading the way, and like even with like the BLM movement, like Colin Kaepernick and in football, like it wasn't necessarily um, embraced by the NFL at first. But he... <laughs> like that
2: is the understatement of the century. Yeah, but yes. <laughs> yeah. But
1: he he was a, a voice when there weren't yeah. a lot of loud voices at that time about uh you know marginalized uh groups and racism and, and sport and
2: yeah.
1: Uh he took a stand for what he believed in and uh, he in many ways you know he's a revolutionary. Yeah. Uh for speaking truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think a new Netflix show just That's came right. out about his it's life just, oh, it amazing. Just came Ava it's Ava Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I haven't watched it yet but a guy I work with is like it's amazing he's already <laughs> seen like three of the six episodes or whatever he's like oh my god you got yeah, so watch cool. so,
2: yeah and he paid an immense personal did. sacrifice oh, yeah. it still is really that, yeah, like yeah. he's
3: he's, I mean he's pretty much cut off from the NFL like they won't have him back it's been yeah. four seasons yeah so he he literally sacrificed his career and millions of dollars yeah right the guy still trains every day like he could maybe make it back and I mean I hope He's a phenomenal athlete and deserves a shot. Uh, it's one of those things where you you choose what you're going to stand for, and he did or kneel for in this case, right? And uh, it cost him something, but it was worth it. And I mean, here we are in Vancouver talking about it today, right? Yeah. As part of the whole movement towards fairness and wellness and for everyone. Yeah. And that's you can't extrapolate that from from climate and planet wellness right there's no no sports on a dead planet
2: yeah i think i would just add to that that like unfortunately what seems to happen is like black folks and queer folks and racialized folks who take a stand like they pay the price for it where other where lots of other people have space or allowed to do that and they're not they don't face the same criticism and we just saw jeff bezos say he saw he learned how fragile the earth was by going up in his space rocket and it's just like (sighs) god i mean yes he's he won't suffer financially from saying that um or doing many of the other things that he's done so yeah i think that that complicates it even more Mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot
1: more on the line
2: so much more on the line yeah. and yet those are the folks leading the movements almost
3: always 100%. So. it was a joke but i signed a petition not to let him back into <laughs> earth it was like jeff Bezos is going <laughs> to space so sign this <laughs> petition to not let him come back and i was like i'll put my email to that, <laughs> that <was
2: funny>. <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, jeff <laughs> i'm not sorry yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right i got a few more questions you might have some to dinner and then, maybe we can hit some rapid fire before we uh you know let this wave ripple off for yes. some some hope in, in
2: yeah, this human is gonna need a break soon <laughs> yes
1: okay okay i got I got two more for you all right um I'm just curious your story with veganism we were kind of talking about it earlier um I know it's it, it can be a loaded topic veganism, but yeah. I just wanted to hear what your your story was
2: yeah, sure, so uh. <laughs> I must have been the most annoying child I'm realizing now for my parents because I was essentially just, like, throwing a protest, like, every single day of my <laughs> I protest this day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And when I was seven, I was like, I will not eat meat anymore. Uh, I wish I, like, remembered the moment. I'm so curious about little Grace. But, like, that was it. Uh, I gave up meat in that moment. Um, and still ate, you know, a lot of dairy. Uh uh but you know it was it was that sense of like othering like I I don't why does it feel so easy to other these beings um and you know for me factory farming was like the real evil there and and it's it's it is still hard for me to think about and to talk about but like it it, the amount of suffering um, and the timeline of suffering for animals involved in that. And then also there's tons of human social justice costs, folks who work in factory farming, folks who live around factory farming. There's like massive, massive pollution concerns and worries. Um, But yeah, just like had a really strong sense that these, you know, and, and we know from social science that, Animals have a limbic system. Mammals do. Like, they feel the way we feel. They have those same primal emotions. Mm -hmm. So I was, like, learning all of these, taking this in. You know, at seven, I had not had, like, the most clear – I had a principled reason for giving up meat, but not the clearest reason. And I should say I lived in the suburbs of New Jersey, so the only meat available was kind of processed. Um, And so – And then I got into a food law and policy clinic when I was in law school and learned like all about factory farming and also how it was destroying kind of all of these corporate farming conglomerates were actually destroying like small farmers, like subsistence farmers um any kind of marginalized folks in in Monsanto farm. and stuff like that, yeah, but also these like massive, massive, and now we also know factory farms are they can create pandemics, they're like they like they see antibiotic resistance, so they and you know, I won't untangle them all, but there's massive, just like almost all social justice threads lead back to food and to factory farming, like there's you know in the US in particular like what commodities we subsidize and then because we subsidize them they're much cheaper and we put them into children's lunches the government does leading to kind of food poverty and and uh, you know early onset diabetes and and just like a whole host of other things um but I didn't – I love cheese, to be honest, and uh, I, I didn't give it up then. And then I got to Canada uh, to start doing my Fulbright. And, like, when I was in the environmental law clinic, one of my friends was like, you know, like, you know, these animals are also suffering, like, for yeah. dairy. <laughs> and it was so interesting because I really got an insight into how – how that must feel to have someone be like you're a bad person essentially oh, no. like but i i think that's what can happen a lot yes. of times when people talk about their choices mm-hmm. um and it feels horrible to be like i i'm i'm a bad person uh but i i reflected on it i thought a little bit about it and i was like you know can i can i afford to make the change can i do this can i um you know, will I be able to eat, like, enough nourishment? And I was like, okay, I'm, I can, and so I'm going to do this. And that was, I guess, maybe seven or eight years ago. Uh, so I've been vegan uh, since then. That was, I think, really helpful to not make the transition all at once because I really saw also what a sacrifice it is. Like, giving up meat was so easy for me because I was young texture was already kind of weird you know I never like I never miss meat but I miss cheese like pizza was my favorite food and so it it reminded me of like what a what a sacrifice it is to change and you have to like relearn how to feed yourself like what are you going to put in your body and all of these things so um that's been my journey and I I really like to focus on the factory farming element of veganism. Like that's in, – in a factory farming system, I, I have the means not to participate. And so for me, it's unethical to do that. But there's so much nuance in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like we know food poverty. We know what communities don't have access. and And like lots of things, it's been associated with a kind of – privileged environmentalism mm-hmm. um it does not have to be and i think anyone doing that like really to be able to talk about these other principles and, <laughs> and not just like say i'm going to get you know it's like healthy or like this is the, <laughs> the, the mm-hmm. you can't put a blanket this. over it yeah, like, you can't put a blanket over anything. Like, we need so much yes and thinking in mm-hmm. this world, like, from improv. Um, but uh, it, it is something that is really important to me, factory farming. Like, my a lot of my work kind of is coming at that tangentially. Like, how do we reduce... Um, our reliance on this like really deeply unethical thing Mm -hmm. that lots of people know is unethical but how do we also then have empathy for why people might not be making that choices why they might not be able to make those choices you know a lot of folks talk about diaspora and how important food is to diaspora communities and this sense of belonging and connecting to a place Um, And that's just like the top of the barrel. So I think I was mentioning to you that I'm most interested in learning about how kind of racialized women think about animal rights and feminism. And and Manisha Decca at UVic is one of the cool voices on that, really writing about how when you other animals, it makes it easier to other humans that Mm. like them. That we have othered humans throughout existence. Like first, you know, like racialized folks, women, they were an other. And like as soon as like you allow something to be othered, you can, makes it easier to cast out. Um, So I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Hmm. Um, Yeah. And then I'm also not militant about my veganism, Mm -hmm. um, which kind of just in everything I do, i I try not to be dogmatic mm-hmm. that's great.
1: It's a good way to be okay. I've got one last question here. Dino, do you know you got any you want to uh throw in throw well, in
3: the hat I think I think it's worth noting. I don't know how much of a question it would be, but m- maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh like you mentioned your website that people should all go check out and if they do, they'll see that you're a bit of an author. you tell yourself call yourself a storyteller as well and there are some like fictional stories that you've written. A trilogy. A trilogy. Yes. That people can read just for enjoyment, but it comes from the lens of educating people around climate and climate change and how
2: an animal, there's like a lot of the, the human animal connection and yeah. Feminism. Yeah. It's like essentially my plan. I, I saw all these people fanning so intensely over twilight. Cause yeah. I wrote around this period Like, really into it, like, spending hours and days and weeks and months of their lives, like, reading them, going to see the movies, like, learning the lore. And just always my mind is, like, how do we take that energy and that love and bring it to saving the world, (laughs) like, to climate justice? Like, it's there. I know we can do it. So I was, like, I'm going to write Twilight, but, like, climate justice version. Yeah. And that was ten years ago when I was like just graduating from university. So yeah, I wrote a trilogy of like hopeful climate fantasy. But now, um, the thing that I'm excited—I have this plan that I'm still scheming. But I'm essentially trying to create a new form of storytelling that can match kind of the scale of the of the climate crisis, and also like be deeply empowering and tied to organizing. and and being empowering for young people so if you want to follow me on social media I'm at grace nosick on twitter and instagram and and more updates will be coming on that soon
3: hopefully. Ooh, that's cool because that could be the next part are there is there more coming and so you answered it Yeah, no. I'm going to give
2: the fossil fuel industry the Voldemort treatment. Let's (laughs) go and uh, really center uh, climate strikers and land defenders in the story.
3: Amazing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm ready to read them all.
1: Yeah,
2: (laughs) I mean, they are young adult romance guys. Like when I got interviewed, (laughs) just so just so you know, because I like I am a scholar, and so I feel like you know, I was being interviewed by the Department of Justice and they were like, these are pretty racy. And I was like, <laughs> oh, you got to do what you got to do for the environment. Like, absolutely. <laughs> know, your gotta yeah. know your audience.
1: It's got to be romantic. Know your audience. Get them on board. Okay, I got a big question. And then we usually wind things up with a few rapid fire rapid fire questions. We'll throw you away. But you mentioned this when we just started chatting and I want to know this vision because I'm 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 subscribing to what you're putting out there grace what is your radical future of the world Mm -hmm.
0: yeah
2: so this is fun because i actually wrote it in a story so i actually like really have a vision and there was this amazing climate fiction contest which i will say like my next big thing is i'm just begging climate storytellers to come out of the woodworks like we need you if you dance if you sing if you write like we need you this is this is the phase where we push back against fossil fuel industry propaganda and we build a movement. So that's one of the big things I'll be working on over the next year. Um, But so stories, Grist ran this amazing climate fiction contest, and so I got thinking about how I would design it. And kind of for me, it came down to this moment where I was watching Joe Biden and Trump debate And they finished the debate, and Biden went to go hug his wife, Dr. Jill Biden. And they had, like, this beautiful embrace. And Trump went over to Melania and, like, she kind of swatted him away. And that was, like – that had been, like, a widely panned and joked about thing. But for me, it was, like, this really scary moment because I felt this deep empathy for Donald Trump. Like, a man who I spent five years of my life trying to make sure he would not be president – And who I think did incredibly evil things. But I was just like, does anyone in the world actually love Donald Trump in a way that's like, I see him and I love him? Like, does he feel that love from anyone? Because famously, he was unloved by his father. It has like created a lot of his dynamic. And I just see so much of the destruction being done in colonialism on climate by men, who are not loved and in community. Um, And so the radical future to me starts with like what happens when like every single person is like unconditionally loved by someone. And so I had this vision of like a big sibling system for everyone in the populations that you would – We would find these empathic people, we would train them, and we would pay them because we never pay folks for this kind of care and emotional labor. Um, And they would just be assigned a cohort of babies, essentially, when they're born that just, like, they, like, throughout that person's life, or, or at least until they were 18, they'd have, like, this paid support of someone who could just listen to anything they needed and talk it through um and i for me that was especially aimed at men i like i think unfortunately men are not socialized to really get to be vulnerable and have people see them and um often that if they do have that connection it's with a partner um but you need it for more than a partner and then what happens if you break up with that partner or that relationship changes and Uh, yeah so I just I think we start changing the world from that space of if you have more time and you feel genuinely loved and supported like what would you do with that time and then to me it starts becoming like universal basic income no one's striving for as much consumption because they are actually fulfilled and loved and their body is cared for and so they spend time painting and playing sports and uh, doing whatever else they feel like, and building time with their family and their friends, and yeah, I kind of always joke that Love Island <laughs> is like could be our climate future, like where your basic needs are met, and like you, your only goal really is to build community and know who you are. Like, and and it's really funny to see what happens on that show when that's what you're, what you have time for.
1: I love. That Love Island is the solution. Yeah.
2: I mean, <laughs> terrible politics on gender and bodies and but, heteronormativity. But I get but, what yes, you're but the sense of like, yeah. I have never seen, I, I watch it religiously because I've never seen men be that vulnerable with each other. Wow. I need like, to watch they it. They always cry. And all they do is talk about love and their connections with each other and with other people. And I, I never see, especially like a diverse group of men doing that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm always like, it's like sports plus love. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Honestly, like, it's so funny. I've had like numerous people being like, Love Island is different than other reality <laughs> TV. You need to check it out. <laughs> but I think like the symbolism that you're speaking of yeah. is, is, is true. And if I mean, even it's a radical idea to empower empathy.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just like, I am deeply loved and I cannot imagine doing Anything in my life, any part of my day to hurt anyone else. I mean, that sounds so like I'm so special. But I think most humans, if you're not hurting, you you don't want to hurt or oppress other people. Mm. Like it, it, that comes from a place of, of lack and missing. And um, I feel really bad if I hurt other people, even if I don't know them. Even, you know, like I... And on, conversely, like... I try to make people's days better who I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's an, I think that is a natural human instinct that kids have like to just like want to play and share and generate.
1: 100%. All right. You know, do we have a couple, I think we've got time for one or two rapid fires and then we'll let's do one or two quick ones. Then we'll park this. Yep. All right. You want to lead
3: it off? Sure. So obviously talking lots about climate and, uh, the world in general, what is a, what is a place you visited that, or, or that, you know, that you would take someone to, to say like, this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And this is why we should like be on board with saving the planet.
2: That is so interesting. Um, And I just have friends who went up to the Great Bear Rainforest, and I've heard that said as a place over and over again. But, like, all I would do is take them to, like, a first grade class or an eighth grade class and be like, what do you think your future on the planet holds? And I ask that question because kids don't have space to talk about their climate fears. Their, Their parents aren't really asking them. Their teachers aren't asking them. And I will tell you every single time the answers are fire, wildfire, hurricane, flood, disaster. That's what these kids are being raised to think their future. And like, can you imagine how that changes your psyche to think you will not have a future on your planet? Like think of the joy. It's just after Halloween. Now you saw kids dressing up as what they thought they could be in their future and realizing pretty soon that they might not have those features, um, we can't do that to them.
1: Mm. Wow, that's great!
3: Thank you. Well,
1: wow. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris. <Grace. laughs> All right, if we're wanting more inspiration and more empowerment uh, to to be the hope that we're we're speaking of, are there any books or documentaries that? uh, you can kind of um, direct people to that uh, will further them on their own journey. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Or any books that you gift to friends that uh, has have impacted you that you know others should also be tuning into.
2: Yeah. Um, what What are they named? Oh, I should have written these down. I'm so bad with book names. But pleasure activism, love right. that one first and foremost. And I think just thinking about what brings you like, what does Adrian Marie Brown call it to like, you know, like an exuberant. Yes. Like what do you have to say no to, to get to your exuberant? Yes. I think there's such practice to learn from that. And then all we can save is like a podcast and a book, Catherine um, Hayhoe. There's this, this cohort of women, um, and climate scientists who are really showing how there is hope, what we can do. And they created this, like, really beautiful Venn diagram for climate action that was, like, what do you love? um, Like, what are your special skills? And, like, what is the work that needs to be done? And, like, at the center of that Venn diagram is, like, your climate action. um, And then I just think resistance, revolution, like, anything, <laughs> any stories of – You know, indigenous resistance uh, or revolution. Indigenous Climate Action is this amazing group in Canada, um, an indigenous-led climate justice group. RAVEN supports frontline defenders. Um, Yeah, I just like would really be trying to listen to water protectors and frontline defenders. And then I did just watch a documentary called Maiden about the first all-female Sailing crew that raced in like the Whitbur around the world sailing oh. race. And I was just like, this is a climate movie. These people, no one thought they could do it. No one gave them the money. No one gave them the support. And like, it was so joyful and triumphant. Um I think just reminding ourselves of all the joyful revolution that, that, and resistance that folks have done through the ages.
3: That's awesome. Okay, our very last question. You got you got one energy for one more. Sure, okay. this is the last
1: one. We okay. promise. <laughs> okay. promise. I promise. <laughs> promise.
3: We ask it to every every guest, so we have to ask you. Okay. Uh, we we name the podcast a little more good with the intention of that's what we want to create. That's what we want to do. So, for you, Grace, what does a little more good mean?
2: Hmm. I mean, I think it's what I was just saying, like. Well, I've started really going by the mantra of pleasure in my day and meaning in my life. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. And so I really, really am, like, taking the moment in the day, especially when I'm eating, like, my vegan earnest ice cream. And I'm just, like, I am alive. I am alive to enjoy this. And I just, again, I think they're so interrelated. Like, the happier and more in my body I am, the more I can... Um, give to our collective liberation.
1: Grace, you're an inspiration. I'm honestly so grateful that uh, you know, you said yes to come and chat with us and I'm excited for this new friendship.
2: Yeah. I'm yes. excited
1: what we can do together, how we can collaborate, how yeah. we can That's create hope some in, you know,
2: athlete parties, very COVID safe. Athlete
1: parties, yeah. We're here for you. Let's do it. We got the running community basketball community whatever 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 however we can support we've got your back mm-hmm. so thank you for your time and and for your friendship yeah. and um you know that radical future that you spoke of for the for the world i you know i hope that i can participate in it too mm-hmm.
2: thank yeah. you i think so. you guys are already part of it and it's like you know your two guy friends uh working together and talking to people and being vulnerable like you're there
1: awesome
3: thanks grace
1: Bye. all right i hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as we did Mm -hmm. i'm feeling so inspired uh you know often i feel anxious about climate change and i think her point about uh pleasure activism helped kind of shift some of my outlook on on climate change and And bringing some some passion into and pleasure into something that can be completely overwhelming at times. Yeah, Uh, I I thought that was that point alone. You know, helped to change my outlook. Yeah, when you can when you can do something
3: important and impactful, and have it be like a good time Mm -hmm. or something that you know is, is brings joy into your life. That's like that is the best way to do it, because not only are you participating in this important conversation or action. You're, you're doing it and you're having fun with friends right or're making new friends and I mean that's ultimately how it should be it, this should not be a grind it shouldn't be something that we're enduring it should be something that brings us joy to know we're making a difference and standing up for our planet and our future and the future for our children and the youth and you know kids of
1: tomorrow because what's a better thing to get more passionate about than you know saving our planet and you know ensuring that our future generations have a livable earth to inhere- inherit. inherit. Yeah, earth. totally. Yeah. So you can
3: check Grace out if you want to learn more or track with her more. She's she's on Instagram, of course. Uh, Grace.nozick N-O-S-E-K So give her a follow there. Check out her website too. Same thing, gracenozick.com And there's some cool little links. I think we, we chatted about it as well. But just to, to give her a shout out to her little um, kind of young adult Series that he she's written, you, I think. yeah, yeah. The the Ava of the Gaia series. So, uh, build as hopeful young adult climate fantasy. So, if you're an avid reader, or even if you're not, check those out. And um, you can also listen to her her podcast, Planet Potluck. Obviously, iTunes, Spotify, all of the places. And then even on her website, there's lots of like videos and links to other things that you can watch to just be inspired
1: yeah. to get into this climate activism space. The Climate Hub um Instagram at UBC, uh that Grace uh, founded is also an incredible source for yes. for climate action and just sharing amazing resources all the time. So check that out. Yeah. All right, well if you guys enjoyed, please share with a friend. We think this is an important conversation mm-hmm. that needs to be shared. So uh maybe give it a nudge, uh throw it up on your social, tell your tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your sister, brother, neighbor. Whoever you think, um, you know, is ready to be a a warrior in, in climate action and climate right. change. Joyful warrior. A joyful warrior. A peaceful warrior. All right. Uh, and uh, yeah, please uh, subscribe, review, like wherever you're tuning in. All that good stuff. We appreciate you all. Uh-huh. Get out there and be a little more good. Peace.